Foxy. Mikey? We got a repeat. Our, our first repeat offender, Gary. Repeat offender. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mike is a Frequent repeat. flyer, repeat offender. Yeah. Based on the results of last week, we know that I'll, I will offend. So we'll just move on the way through it. Well, well, you, you you told us a story a moment ago, Mike, about uh, a good way to not get invited back to a gathering of cowboy craftsmen. What was what was that story? Well, I I I've, I don't know. I've had a chance to to be on the agenda or in attendance at a at a few events that were hosted by either the state or or other. Um, parts of the traditional cowboy arts. And I've come to the conclusion that the, the easiest way to ever get invited again is to be the person on the agenda talking about business. Yeah, I, boy, that's true. I, I'll say, uh, I'm just glad you're here. I'm, I'm glad you're here, Mike, because now we can have a party together and not getting invited. Cause I, people <laughs> probably think that's all I talk about is business and making money. And all I'm concerned about is money, 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 money. No, I, I, I have the precursor is, is I chose to sacrifice money to do what it is I want to do. I did. I don't want to do production. We built 1500 bits and spurs a month. Is there money? Absolutely. There's money in that. And I could have a whole bunch of people working in my shop with a minor skill set to accomplish money. I don't want money, but guess what? I want to make as much money as I possibly can make doing what it is that I do and I love, which is custom one-off stuff. I don't have to take a butt kicking just because it's not about money, right? Yeah. You know, I want to clean that statement up just a little bit because um, it's not that there is a, a terrible resistance necessarily to the business conversation because the single most topic, topic that anybody ever wants to talk about is pricing. Yeah. Uh, it, so it's, there's not a reason. It's not that it's just a shut. A, they're slamming the door, but there's so much interest in improving their craft that that, that becomes the front and center conversation. And anything that competes with that um, is going to get challenged. Uh, so it, it's it's really a, a very which I love about this whole group. This myopic focus on improving the quality. Um, of what what we all do and so so it's it's one of those good news bad news uh, pieces well and i look at it this way sorry schwartz you're not going to get to talk today me and mike are on again <laughs> <laughs> so i got another but so i look at it this way and it's human nature i'm not going to pick on any one course one individual or anything like that but but uh, i show how to uh, forge out mouthpieces and and you start out with a piece of round stock and they say where's your where's your die well i got a hammer and i got an anvil there it is there's my there's my form and i go to beating on it and they say isn't there an easier way to do it they want to make the mouthpiece but isn't there an easier way to do it well yeah but it's very limiting as to what you do and and, and then and and it's all the way into this pricing discussion okay we all want to make a living we all want to be able to get as much as we're worth which is where we're headed in this whole conversation, but isn't there an easier way to do it? Maybe not, right? I mean, that, and that's kind of what that's kind of what we're talking about here. Is you're going to have to do some things. You're going to have to work for it. It's not just going to be given to you. And so, we're, am I going to have to keep track of my time? Yeah. Is it a pain in my ass? I wish I didn't have to do it, but I do. I can't get around it. So. That's what that's what we're discussing, I think. 
Yeah. And, and, and tracking time is not the complete basis for how you price. Oh, uh, hell no. I'm not going to mention last week. I, you know, I, I know how long, theoretically, it should take me to build a fair set of Ramals. I have yet to build a set in that time frame. And it's <laughs> yeah. cutting buttons off or that I, I, I'll braid something. That it's, look, it's perfectly fine maybe to everybody else, but not to me. Or mm -hmm. I'll change course in the middle of it. Um, so there's all these things that are me driven that get in the way of that, that I, I have to own those. I can't put that, that off on someone else. Um, and, and that's, that's part of the craft. Yep. That's part of life, right? That's part of business, right? In that, in that, in, in, in any of our, in, you know, I, I mentioned my friend Caleb Kattner, who's, who's a Reese Albert and building roads. They're all the time trying to build a better road under code and do better and all that. And sometimes you have to do things that may cost you a little money, right? Trying yeah. to be better. Yeah. Well, now to clarify, Jerry, you're you're keeping, keeping track of time. Uh, I think the turning point, just to emphasize, I think, again, what we talked about before is not I've kept track of my time on stuff for years, many, many years, but I haven't kept track of all of my time. And that's the, that's the linchpin. That's the difference here. That's the, that's the, the game changer is you start keeping track of all of your time. Then, then you start getting a kind of more holistic approach to what's going on with your day. I want to ask you this, Carrie. I want to ask, define to me what keeping track of your time was in detail. And like, how did you keep track of time? Was it to the second? Was it to the minute? Was it to the project, the day? Like, I want to know what you thought keeping track of your time was up until we started time journaling and all that. What was that? What was that? Good question. Uh, so, before, for the most part, I, the variable was my flower stamping, my decoration prices. I would keep close track of my time on that, probably within, within five-minute increments. And uh, write that down uh, because I took a page out of your book. Uh, I tell people, my customers, I say, well, I think I can do it for this amount, um, but mm -hmm. it could be as much as this. I'll promise mm -hmm. you, even if I go over time-wise, over the upper, that upper figure, I won't charge you more than that. Right. Uh, so that's my assurance to my customer. But I think I can do it somewhere in this window. But it may come in, I'm just going to, it'll be what it'll be. If it w winds up being less than, than uh, the lower figure, then that's what it is. And, and so right. I kept track of my flower stamping prices, but what gets lost in the weeds was my base price. I didn't keep track of my saddle construction time. Uh, so that's what was getting away from me was I wasn't really sure exactly. Conley uh, texted me a couple of days ago and asked me, what's your base price and how, how much time do you figure on your, your, uh, base price saddle time wise. And, and, uh, I, I told him, uh, 6,500 and I think, uh, I'm last time I kept track of that, a uh, rough out, I think it was, it was about 38 hours start to finish. And, and that figure actually has grown by 10, 
The last time I kept track, it was 28 hours and 15 minutes. I was able to to get it done. So anyway, long answer, but that's the way I was doing it. But but there was a whole bunch of construction stuff, mechanics that I wasn't keeping track of. And I'm also, of course, keeping track of everything else I do that's non-billable hours and trying Mm -hmm. to analyze what's going on with that. Now I'm keeping track of everything, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, heavens. Thanks, heavens. Because because now you know, Kerry, right? You thought you knew. Now you know, yeah, and and that's Absolutely. what that's what gets me so often. Well, I got this much time in it, and I've heard some of our our closest friends that I love and will never say their name on here, but they oh I know how much it took me this many days. You don't know. You think you know, but you don't know. You thought you were getting all these hours in your shop until Mike talked us into time journaling. Now you're like, oh crap, I'm not getting near what I thought. One of the the learnings I had is that we worked with firms that, that all they did was strategic planning. Was um, the concept we would always want to focus on as business people? What are we going to do? Um, that was our, that was our mission to do something, and quick, quickly got realigned to the idea that in strategic planning, which is what you're you're getting ready to do with your time journaling. The most important thing and the hardest thing for anyone to do is to decide what you are not going to do yeah. so that you have time to spend more time on the things you want to do and that are rewarding and that are generating higher incomes. Um, that concept was really hard for me because I kept diverting back to, well, let's just go do something or I want to do this or I think we need to do that. Once I started to realize just how much I was doing on things that didn't really uh, move the needle in the business or in my life, that started to change um, how I looked at it. I did a bunch of stuff yesterday, description and pricing and and things for um, to, to send off email, show stuff, sent two, t- two pieces to the TCA show, Encore piece, and one I'd finished, sent some stuff to Pahusco, Oklahoma for the show up there. It was an all-day deal, back and forth, and photography and all that. And I've taught Eli how to going to do some some photography, but like me doing the descriptions and all, I had to do it the whole time. I was gritting my teeth, wishing I didn't have to do it. That I like that was an easy decision. Why am I doing this? But it was also one of them things that crap. I got to do it, and it's not moving the needle in the in the short term. Frustration on that part, but. It's it, Mike. I probably have a harder time deciding what I'm, or figuring out how to not do the things I don't want to do. Like that's the like hiring Eli. It's been easy to do certain things that I didn't want to do, but now there's some things that I don't want to do still that I'm still having to do because yeah. I don't know how to get the personal touch off of it. Well, and it, and it's not it's not always that you just stop doing it, but you find other ways to get it done. So that's for true. Example: When I started out. Kerry talked about having um, all of his silver engraving equipment. Well, I've got a whole bunch of leather tools, um, stamps, and I mean, it fills a box of stuff Mm -hmm. I paid good money for because I I said, well, I can do all that too. Well, I quickly realized that by the time I got myself trained up to do it to the quality that I wanted done, 
it was way better for me to have someone else who that's all they do yeah. do it. Um, and, so, and that's just, so that was me saying, I'm not going to do this, but I'm not, I don't, I can't give it up. I have to have it done. So outsourcing became the option for me. Yeah. So this break, we, we might, as, so we, let's, the, let's talk about what we're, what the value, right? Um, the value of that time that we're keeping track of. Never keep. <clears throat> yeah. Well, there's a, what, so there's, a question that's that arisen, there's a question that's yeah. arisen here, and it, and it always comes up. I I don't know how many times. Wish I had yeah. ten bucks every time I've heard this question. Yeah, but what will the market bear? Um, mm. So, the we're going to open a can of worms here and and see if we can get death threats and all kinds of stuff on this. So. Uh, the, really, the cool part is, 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 uh, yeah, there's uh, no answer here. <laughs> I need to log off here real quick. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta go. Well, and there's no, so we, we've talked time. And as Mike said, that's only one minor element. That's just a foundation to get started on answering this question right here. Right. That's kind of an expense that has, that's only part of the value. And, um, and so what is that time worth um, really is, is kind of what the market value is. And, and I, I had a, a close friend and somebody that I really, really admired tell me last weekend in Abilene that the market would only, he, the market's only this much. It'll only sell for this much. It was an incredible piece that I was looking at. Like I ain't lying. Some of the best I've seen for a dollar value that was minimal and I was like, Oh, I'm so sad for the guy, right? In a lot of ways, because was it worth as much as what I could charge? No, no, because I've done a lot of things in the past 20 years to make my market value more, but he sold it the first day at the first offering, boom, gone. The market told him right there. It was absolutely worth more than that. Probably because it didn't make them think hard enough, but I was, I was so he was he was limiting himself for whatever reason. He thought that's all it was worth. And and how do we figure that out, right? That's the question. How do we figure out what that value is, what the market will bear? Well, I think uh, one of the things, uh, every time I hear that, the first question I, I comes to my mind is, is how are we going to know what the market will bear until we know what it won't bear and that's just what you're saying right there's wilson yeah and, yeah and uh, kind of approaching it the same way as mike a moment ago on uh time spent on things that you do and letting go of the things some of those things it's it's looking at it from a different point of view so we won't know how much the market will bear until we know what it won't bear and you have to cross a threshold in order to, to find out where that is. And and I, I got a question exactly. for you. Wilson, Mr. Wilson. This is uh, mm. Dennis the Menace mm -hmm. here asking Mr. Wilson a question. Mr. Wilson! <laughs> Can you tell what the market will not bear by how much a potential customer complains about the price? 
No. Can you tell how much the market cust- won't bear by how much that potential customer complained about the price? You're just talking about one customer. A customer, whatever. Many A customers, customer. So, whatever. so uh, let me let me answer it this way from life experiences. Um, Two thousand and eight, nine, something like that. I built the 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 spade bit that I got crucified for because I and legit functionally made it off. Right, it didn't work. Um, I I had to learn what what the purpose of a spade bit was. Made a bad mistake. Priced it at thirty thousand dollars. I still own it. Market wouldn't bear thirty thousand dollars. Two thousand eighteen, um, made a made a pair of spurs, sculpted the steel, inlaid the gold in background. Some of my friends and peers have told me it's the greatest pair of spurs ever made. Thirty thousand dollars. Didn't sell. Still own them. Will the market bear thirty thousand? Proof right there says no. If you're just listening to one customer or one scenario or even two scenarios. So my work may not be worth $30,000 is what we're saying. Now, last year I dove off into a, into a Santa Barbara, not a spade, but a, but a Santa Barbara and, and I sculpted the road runners on it. When I got to the end of the story, it was $31,000. I had a decision to make as a market worth $30,000 for me, Ernie Marsh, Mark Dahl, um, John Ennis, they've all crossed the $30,000 threshold. I have an extremely hard time with 20, 25. One person had ever bought anything at the TCA show over $20,000 from me over 16, 18 years. Lots of proof right there that my market wouldn't bear $30,000 for me. And if it did, it was only to one person. And that person has told me and us that he's kind of pulling back. He's not really buying as much anymore. I got to the end of my day last year and it said $31,000 for the bit. My time is my time. My expense was my expense. I'm going to hold to my guns. And I priced it at $31,000 and it sold. So, now what's my market value? Is it, it did one person say it is worth it? And now that that one person says, oh yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> it's one person. I don't know. But I do know that if I'd have listened to the previous examples up to that bit, that I wouldn't have priced it at 31,000. I said, you know, I better price it at 25 because nobody will spend 30. So, so market value is, is, uh, it's a really broad question yeah. because it, um, you know, if you just simply look it up in the dictionary, it says it's whatever the market will pay you for something. Well, that's just the definition of the market is pretty vast and there's all kinds of segments within that market. Um, the, the term I like or the area I like to, to focus on is um, the idea of perceived value versus mm. market value. Because I... perceived value is something that we can create, um, exactly. that we can support, and that we can build upon. Um, and that allows us as artists to direct where we want to spend our time, which segment of the market we want to spend our time. And um, that really narrows it in to where um, I think we can have a 
a more robust conversation about because if we just simply what will the market bear that I, in my in my view that just takes us to the lowest common denominator so mm -hmm. when that market um will pay you something yep. for that gear versus how do i build the gear i like to build for the audience that will reward me or the maker um for what you've created and that's perceived value. And I've been talking a lot about that, Mike, is in the last couple of years is perceived value and, and in starting to understand that better. Um, uh, because, you know, that that uh, that bid I made last year, you know, $1,000 worth of gold and $10 worth of steel is the was the expense of the materials put in the piece so now it's just a perception right it's just perceived value of what we think and and there's a lot of we have to build that right i mean and maybe you can help with that but that's that's what creates the perceived value is is building the perception hey wilson nobody wants to look stupid and spend a lot of money on something that isn't worth it so now we have to help people believe it's worth it and there's a lot of things that you have to do Besides keeping track of your time to increase that perception, correct? Correct. Yeah, the, the number one thing in building a pricing strategy for me is reputation. Without that, um, everything yep. else is built on um, a, not as solid of a platform. And yep. so everything I do and anybody I, I get engaged with I talk about reputation and, and partly because a lot of our communication today happens on Facebook mm -hmm. and um, you don't know who's reading your post. Um, mm -mm. You don't know if it's a man or a woman. You don't know whether they're Republicans or Democrats. You don't know any of those things. And so um, as we post, we are affecting our reputation, good or bad. Yeah. And we that that's the beginning of it and it it it's what then allows a good reputation a reputation that stands the test of time will allow um, your customers to come along with you on the ride it will um, allow them to see your progression in your in your craft and to take the risk with you on the $31,000 bit um, because they know that they are betting on the right reputation. So to me, that's that's the first that's the starting point, and it's the thing you can never forfeit. And, and, and sometimes you don't know you're doing it right. I mean, so that that bit sold to a, a man that I've known a long, long time, but over the last couple of years, we've been in similar places at the knife show, and uh, having a big time together and, and building relationship and friendship, all that cool stuff, you know, and, and he gained a trust in me and talked to a lot of other folks as to whether or not it's actually good. And a lot of them high-end knife makers said, man, that is some great engraving. That guy doesn't, or whatever they were saying, I don't know. But it, it helped him believe that the perceived value of that was worth the 31000 and he wouldn't look like a fool. It, it, it takes a long time to do that. And I'm doing everything I can now past pat you know past the sale is to is to reinforce those beliefs everything that i do he's watching everybody's watching day in day out am i reinforcing that confidence that what i'm doing is elite one of a kind worth the money that i'm asking for it and and uh, if you don't 
You're, it, that's, you can't just do a nice thing every now and then and expect somebody to pay you big money for it. It's day in and day out. Everybody's watching always. That's social media. That's a benefit of social media for you. Well, let me let me play a little bit of a, I guess, devil's advocate here. So, and listening to you guys talk here, and especially Wilson, you're 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 describing a scenario, a situation where you're operating at a, a rarefied level, uh, mm-hmm. you know, top of the food chain, all of that kind of stuff. But what about what about everyone else? What about that guy five years in, ten years in, uh, trying to trying to scratch out a living and stuff and he's he's kind of wedded to trying to trying to build to a market we've heard that before and that market is the cowboy crowd and uh he's in the same economic strata as that cowboy crowd and trying to trying to figure out how to how to forge ahead how to make a life and stuff like that do these same dynamics apply that you described to that yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I believe they do. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it it's uh, always a challenge when you're starting out because uh, you have no choice but, in my opinion, to overbuild because you're trying to create that reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, yet to do that, you're probably not as efficient yep. or as effective yet in the craft. And so you're you're it's, it's going to take you longer, naturally. Um, you're going to miss the mark here and there. And so, uh, but it, it doesn't, I don't think the rules of the game change oh. based on um, where you are as a maker. I, I, and, and in my, I have no education to, to say I totally agree, Mike. I have nothing, but I do, right? I mean, I, I, I completely agree. And and in the beginning, I tell people in the beginning, you're not good enough or fast enough in order to charge enough to make a living. You're in the apprenticeship portion of your career. And we don't have that in America, so to speak. It's like you can just, go, especially in my bit and spur world, you can, you can call and get some parts shipped to you and you got a little welder and you put it together and by God, you're a bit and spur maker. Well, um, I see nothing wrong with all of that. Like I encourage guys to get started. I want them to, but man, to just to go out and jump out there and say, you owe me X amount of dollars might a big number could be difficult because, because it's, it's the same process as, as you build a reputation and you build a, you learn, you learn how to build quality stuff. It's not going to be at first, right? That's okay. It's, it gets started, but, uh, yeah, it's all the, when I first got started, it was $100 a day. That's what I wanted to make. I was making 150 a week working for Greg, so if I thought I made $100, $100 a day, I'd be getting rich. And filled the order book up, of course. Um, continue to do good work. Continue to improve. Continue to go up on price. It's never changed. That's been the whole deal, right? Is is steady Eddie. Uh, creating this perceived value is something that, you need to be able to do something that you can replicate over and over and over again. That's it. Um, it's it's not about pricing that one piece, right? Um, it because for for someone who's trying to make a living, cash flow should be king, um, and and having that repeatable cash cash flow is what pays the bill. Um, it's what allows your family. Um, 
to look to you for the support that they need from you. It, all those things are tied to that repeatable cash flow. And so it's, it's what can I build and how can I build it in a way that will um, continue to generate cash as I learn my, my trade. I, a lot of the folks, if they ask me, uh, I'll tell them that start out when you've got a job so that you don't have the pressure of paying the bills. Apprenticeship. Now, yeah, you're working 18 hours a day and weekends mm -hmm. and you're forfeiting, mm -hmm. you know, you're sacrificing some things along the way. But all of those who are our points in life who built careers, we did that. It yep. was not an eight to five, um, yeah. take the rest of the week off kind of deal. You had to invest that that time. And you, can, if you're employed, then you can do that. You can you can work at um, building the trick, building up a book of business and skills. So when you step off the cliff and go to, go it alone, um, you've got a basis to to uh, to count on and to look to. Was a very I was a very lucky individual in that for three years my real job my day job was making bits and spurs. And then in the evenings, after I got off my day job, I got to make bits and spurs. And I left Greg, and that's what it was again, right? I actually didn't leave Greg to become a bit and spur maker. But everything I did was practicing and building towards the career that I have now. And so I was extremely lucky. If I'd have been a fireman and then had to build bits and spurs in the evening, well, I'd have been exhausted, right? And it had been, been a different I wouldn't have got to practice all day like I am, but that, you're talking about the apprenticeship years of your, of your skill set. Don't quit the day job, stay hooked and get to a point where you have a good reputation. You're good enough, fast enough and start to understand what your value is. And voila, you, then you can start to make tough decisions that I'm going to jump out, out of the fire into the, <laughs> the wide, wide world. Got a question for you, Wilson. Mm -hmm. So when you were you were working for Greg for those three mm -hmm. years, fifteen hundred bits a month, is that what you said? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those bits were considered products. Mm -hmm. That word was probably used on on Greg's website. They were products. Mm -hmm. Now my question where in this continuum in your journey did you stop thinking about what you did as a product and started thinking about it as art is that what you're as art or work peace i mean the work of your hands uh there was a i promise you somewhere in there it may not have been a particular day probably wasn't but somewhere in there you started thinking of your work as the work of your hands and not a product to sell and the point I'm trying to make is that when we start, when we use the word product, we, we immediately blur the lines of distinction between what we do and everything else out there in American business. So for me, it was the day I started engraving and, and brought it up to my dad. Was, I was just parts chopping, right? But y'all know what my dad said. We better start start talking about art and design. So oh no, pop, that's not what I'm doing. I'm making products. I was, I'm building <laughs> products. Yeah. And pop said, "Well, what the hell do you think that is?" Yeah. And 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 so at that point, you know, and you know why I said, "Oh no, pop," 
Because I didn't want to take on that responsibility of having to learn. I didn't want to keep track of my time. I didn't want to learn how to design. I just want to build a product. This is easy, right? Copy and paste. Bunkity, bunkity, bunkity. Draw a round spiral. Cut it up. I'm an engraver. He refused to allow me to do that. But that is the point where I started to take responsibility. I feel like probably thinking back to it because that changed the game, right? It's not copy and paste. This is art and this is design. And now it's your heart and soul. It's not a product. Now, I'll say those that put their heart and soul in the product probably have a better product than those that don't. At whatever, whatever you're creating. I don't care if it's tires or whatever. If you're putting your heart and soul into it as a company, you're going to create a better product. But at the end of the day, though, um, our gear, our products. Yeah. Because it's a, it, they're, they're, it's a consumer that yep. is acquiring them um, based on some evaluation that they've made um, in, a, in, a, in a product management or product world. Um, you'll, you're, mm -hmm. you'll hear three terms pretty consistently when anyone, when a marketer is describing their product. They'll talk about the features, they'll talk about the benefits, and they'll talk about the advantages of their product. Um, and those become the basis for why they believe someone should pay X for that product. And I don't know that we're, I don't know that we're a lot different. I think if we took the time that we could um, put bullet points under each one of those three categories relative to our gear, but we don't, um, as an, in, as a broad industry, we don't, um, Elko last year at the Cowboy Museum, they have, uh, they have a bit and spur contest every year that's become really successful. And they added Ramal reins last year for the first time. And there were 11 sets of Ramals hanging on the wall. It's the most product I've seen in one place laying side by side in, 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 since I've been involved in this. And I'm pretty convinced that, that most of the people looking at the wall didn't know the differences between <laughs> what was one versus the other. They had their perceived value yeah. uh, you know, that they, they decided because they bid on it. Everything sold. It was phenomenally successful. Um, I think all of us at, at prices that were, were certainly nice to see, but we had the benefit of um, the museum benefiting from the auction, and that always seems to elevate price um, pretty significantly. But um, nowhere on that wall did, did was there a little placard that says, hey, this is an 8x12 eight eight working set of reins. Um, this is 12x16 San Inez with the rawhide core. There was nothing that gave any definition to one versus the other, and that's but we need to start becoming more proficient as a group about answering those questions. And most consumers won't ask you. They won't walk up and say, well, what are the features and what are the advantages and what are the benefits? We have to advance that conversation. And as artists and a whole bunch of introverts, that's not <laughs> always the easiest thing in the world to do. No. I'd, I'd agree that, that from a technical standpoint, yes. Uh, these are products. There's there's time and material. That so that in that sense, yes, there's com some commonality. But 
I think we need to find ways to build distinction between what we do and the rest of of the American economy. The American business model is is designed around Walmart and and you you try to offer uh, you churn out uh, products by the gross and you try to offer it at a price that you'll sell it, it's all about volume with little regard to quality so uh, and but if yeah. we we build relationships with people so that they so that through that relationship you just described a relationship you had with the collector Wilson is this did mm-hmm. he make a purchase or did he make an investment well exactly we I purchase mean, products but we invest in work and it's just a, a type of mindset that i think we need to find find a way to to think of what we do in different terms and not get lured into the the pop culture stuff that we bathe in every day and that is just just buying stuff that's throwaway we're not competing directly with Walmart, but we are competing directly with the Walmart mentality. And the problem is, we're not going to be able to out Walmart Walmart. We can't do that. And I, it sounds maybe as better to even say that, but that is the elephant in the room, is what it, what it looks to me like. It's one of the reasons in the last call I mentioned this idea that um, I think as makers, what we make is more like jewelry than it is um, apparel. Um, I, I, uh, and, and for me, I, I, I want to be able to sell what I do in Tiffany's. That's where I, that's where, you know, someone's paying top dollar because of image and they know it's quality and uh, they could go get something similar um, at the store next door, but that it's not in that blue box. It's not, it's not Tiffany. And that's that reputation piece starting to come to bear. It's the quality of your work. Um, and, but you have to build up to that. Um, I'm yeah. not there yet. And I may never get there as a hobby braider, but um, that's, that's the aspiration that, I've, that I see in most everyone I come in contact with is to be able to get to that place. You just can't will it. You have to earn it. You, you absolutely have to earn it, Mike. And and that you have to work towards it. You have to have that as a goal and build towards it. And I've done that my whole entire career. So coming from Greg, 1500 a month, bits and spurs, I knew I didn't want that, right? So what was I trying to get to? What did I want to do? Custom one-off pieces that, that art and design that was the question that was given to me, what, you know, from my dad is, is like, they, that's always been there. And you talked about what do we have in our product that's beneficial? What's the features of it? Well, it's come to my mind in the last, probably the last 10 to 15 years that's solidified is I'm telling your story of the West, not my story. These business spurs are not about me. Do I have a skill set? Do I have a passion for doing certain things? Yes, but I'm building your pair of spurs or your bit. And that is where it separates me from Walmart, um, from Jim Edwards, who's a dear friend doing great bridal bits that they're winning 
ever damn competition, Western Performance Horse competition out there riding his bridle bits. But you only get to ride what Jim makes, what sells at Walmart, right? He's not going to build what you want. That's my benefit is I get to come to you and make an absolute personal connection and you're going to get involved in the process before I turn the first machine on. The pencil is going to get sharpened and you get involved. That's what separates me. That's how that's how it builds the relationship. And, and that doesn't mean I'm different than the rest of our industry. There's lots of other guys doing that too. But I take pride in focusing on that to begin with. And is it a pain in the butt? Sometimes it's a butt kicking. Trying to get out of somebody what it is they want. And, and to... To, and it's all unique. So how the hell do I price for it, right? I got to bid. We all have to bid before I get started. I can do it for this much. Well, crap, I've never done that before because this person took me to a new place. But that's what separates me is is being able to do that for somebody. And and that's what separates us as custom makers. Let me put it that way. To me. Yeah, one, one, one thing that, another thing, but a, kind of an idea that, that I think might help some folks is that we have to um, categorize the industry that's out there. There's lots of segments. We can yes. be selling to the working cowboy. We can be selling to the performance horse world. Um, there's, there's different segments, and each of them have different thresholds yep. for what they and for how they value what they buy. Um, but to start out, if I like to try to keep it simple. So the idea of good, better, and best. And I'll leave the TCA there. The TCA, what you guys are talking about when you talk about a $31,000 bit, that's yeah. not even in those three categories. That's that's above that because you've evolved to a place that um, that the rules are are unique unto themselves. Sure. Um, but for the for the average maker, good, better, and best is, a, is, is a, a more comfortable way for me anyway to engage in this discussion. And you have to have really good self-awareness to be able to put yourself into which category you are. Um, and you have to have some criteria around what defines those, those categories. But what it allows me to do anyway is to know when I started out, I was good and I could follow how I was doing against that continuum by looking at other makers' work, by here, by getting judged. Um, and that alone is a tough thing. You, no one wants to critique my work because they don't want to hurt my feelings mm -hmm. um, because that's happened a lot when they critique their someone's work. Hell, I'm just the opposite, let let loose. And I I got thick skin and, I'm, and I want to learn but, but being willing to, to engage in that discussion so you know where you are in that continuum is really important. And be willing to acknowledge that, that you're going to be in different parts of that category based on what you build. Mm -hmm. So my, my Ramals might be in one category, but my Hackamores are probably down the list in the lower category uh, because that's not where I focus time and attention. And, and getting that framework in place... Um, helps with this idea of market valuation or perceived value um, and so and so that you can actually uh, see where you are as you move forward. I don't want you separating me from the rest of the world, though. <laughs> when you say TCA, because <laughs> that's like, that. you know what that is? That's my best, right? It, and so... Uh, I understand, but, but it, <laughs> it, it is... 
Um, it's and, not norm. It's not a norm, well, Mike. I totally understand. Terry used this term uh, early in, in, as we were talking about me even being on one of these podcasts. <laughs> he said, he said, I'm working really hard to, to turn my 40-year career into an overnight success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that term, Redbox. Everybody always looked at us and said, my God, that was an overnight success. There was 20 years yeah. Um, in both Redbox and Coinstar before it it was recognized and everybody went, oh, hell, that popped up out of nowhere. No, it yeah. didn't. Yeah. Um, but behind every overnight success are years yeah. of really hard work. Yeah. And so when I say, when I say separate you, it's only because no one's going to start out and probably get $31,000 for a bit. But no. they might start out and get eight grand for one saddle and feel like, well, now that's the norm. It's not, that may not be the norm. That's just that moment in time you found the right customer with a hell of a good product, but you have to be able to replicate that before you have a pricing strategy or before you have a pricing approach. So the, the, this is the scenario I give people all the time. So, oh, Eli's in here working for me and he's doing he's doing custom orders how do you build that big piece how do you stretch yourself who's that customer that customer is extremely difficult to find and there's not going to be anybody even at this stage in my career that just turns me loose they all have a budget right we all have a budget but that $31,000 bit had a game plan it had an end result that I was looking for yes did I have a budget in mind I absolutely did but I pick a show and I've done it my whole career. I build custom stuff throughout the year that people can afford. And then where and how am I going to stretch myself? Am I going to take myself to a new level that people can see and understand? How am I going to build better for tomorrow? I pick out that show and I build something that I'm not sure I can create. And I get done with it and I say, man, here it is. This is how long it took me. This is what I got. I get to price it at the end of the day. Be respectful to where I'm at in my career with my price point. Uh, maybe I go up, maybe I don't, but, but I invest the time and the energy to stretch myself and do I keep it? Do, is it, is the potential to keep it? Yeah, absolutely. And I have some of my pieces that, that I stretched that didn't sell, right? I described two of them a while ago, but I think that's what you have to do is, is that if you just wait for that customer to show up, to take you to those places, I think it's a slow journey, right, mm -hmm. Carrie? No, I, what we're trying to do is lead by example. And, you know, if that, that winds up, we've separated ourselves in some way or another, so be it, whatever. I'm, I'm, I've kind of gotten over that over the last 25 years. Taking me a uh, long me too. time. Okay. Well, <laughs> me too. But, uh, Maybe don't, don't think about it as, don't think about it as separating yourselves. You, in, you're inspiring um, a community. And, yeah. We need that inspiration. I, I guarantee you, I think I have every one of the TCA um, show catalogs in my shop. Um, the pages are, are worn because there's inspiration in there, not yeah. just on rawhide, on, on design and look and feel and um, collaborative pieces. We, for this industry to, to be a vibrant long-term we have to have inspiration 
we have to. Yeah, and and I'm I'm joking when I say don't separate me, Mike. But on the other side of the coin, I what the point of it is that I do want to make is is for those people that w that will become TCA members, don't think it changes. It doesn't. That struggle is the same, <laughs> right? Is that is that that good good better and best? That best is still the same. Even in you're in the TCA show, that best is still the same as when I started out at hundred dollars a day. Yeah. So just think about I I'll 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 back off that a little bit. I, I understand it's good pushback. You're just at the, <laughs> the higher end of best, yeah. right? And yeah. And that that continues to evolve. And because the, the thing about good, better, and best is you can be in better and everybody around you improves, and all of a sudden you're just good. You're just um, good. That's right. And, and and that's 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 part of that inspiration piece. The the and this is and Carrie bring Dr. Kittredge up again. Um, if you'll recall, and when we were in Salmon with her, one of the things that she said you absolutely have to do do is build a showpiece that shows everything you're capable of doing and take it everywhere you go. And it may never, ever sell. But what it does is it inspires people to think about you differently. Absolutely. And uh, and it forces you to be uh, to develop your skills. That's, that's, that's exactly what I was talking about, Mike, by, by picking a show and showing off. And pray like hell that some bitch sells so you don't have to go home and tell your wife that it didn't, right? <laughs> but, but that's what it's about is show you can't imagine how many pieces i've sold off of pieces i didn't sell they couldn't afford that big one but by golly they can come close and they get something just a little bit less there's back in uh, 2008 so that was our our 10-year anniversary show and and uh, of course you were there wilson we they moved the gallery out mm -hmm. to the to the uh, uh hallway out there and uh it was cheek to jowl at the opening night. It was it was standing room only in that hallway. And of course, as the process goes, it's not an auction. Uh, you place your name in a in a bid box and, and then you get drawn hopefully out of there. And the first person drawn gets a chance to purchase that piece at that price. Well, <clears throat> after the end of that bidding, so-called bidding, uh, uh, then then they start posting names on the wall of the persons who got drawn for those particular pieces well i was standing just just coincidentally i just happened to be standing oh probably less than 10 feet away from dale harwood's saddle it was priced at ninety six thousand five hundred, and it had a, a bit a bridle that dale had made and i think nate had a, a rawhide riad on there and just kind of a complete set, set up, tapaderos, the whole thing, uh, classic hardwood work. And I was shoulder to shoulder with Don Hedgepath, the, the late, great Don Hedgepath. Those who have never met Don, you, <laughs> I'm sorry you missed out. Yep. He's a great guy. And, and when they blew the horn and Dale Saddle sold at 96500 he leans over and he says in my ear, Every saddle maker in North America is going to go change their prices after tonight. <laughs> so that was leading by example. Uh, 
this is this is where this could go and uh so <clears throat> that's of course that didn't exactly happen but it was one piece of the puzzle in the journey uh, to empower and give other good quality makers out there and people trying to trying to get that reputation that mike's been talking about uh that that feeds into this mindset of thinking of what we do as as work of our hands rather than just a product and uh, mm-hmm. have the confidence to price it appropriately there's no easy it's not easy right there's no there's no easy number there um but i i i will say respect for what's gone before us and what will come right and so that means that means what what dale has done that for me john Ennis selling the forty five thousand dollars spurs in 2003 it was huge for our industry um but it also means my customers that have come before to respect for them so so when i priced that bid at thirty one thousand dollars there was a lot of respect for those that had given me that same number for pieces in the past right and uh, and if i'd have priced that bit less than $31,000, I would have disrespected those folks. So that also plays into my deal too, is like I spent more time and more energy building that bit. Had I priced it at $20,000 because I thought that's all the market would bear, then I would have disrespected the market before that had spent the same amount of money, just less time, right? They spent the same amount of time and money, just less time. And so the piece was less. And so I, I didn't dis- disrespect anybody in, in le- leveling it out at 31,000 and I very well could have brought it home, right? It was, a, I was one name away from complete failure, <laughs> but because of, because of one name, it was complete success. So, <laughs> you know, it's thin ice. It's, it's... But, but to be, to be, for me anyway, I, I think pricing your own work is the hardest task that I have faced around the idea of business in anything. Right. I was, whether it was dog food or Coinstar or DVD rental, pricing was, it was um, arm's length. It, was, it wasn't, I wasn't me that I was pricing. Um, artists, art is harder because it's hard to put a price on yourself. Um, and so we have to find ways to, uh, I do anyway, I have to find ways to take myself out of the conversation, to be willing to uh, find other ways and other information to help guide me and encourage me, or if necessary, to hold me back from doing something that may I may not be ready to do. And uh, it's this is a unique world, I think, because of that. I think what you just said there is very significant, Mike, because how to separate yourself from, from your work. And I, I've, I've heard that analogy before. It might have been Shep Herman at our very first saddle makers uh, gathering we had here in Idaho. And uh, you take your, it might, have been, it might have been Dr. Kittredge, where you take your craftsman slash artist hat off and put your businessman's hat on. And you take an objective view of your pricing, just taking a look at your, your materials and your time. And that's not easy <laughs> because when a customer comes in your shop, you're not part of a system 
you are the system. And that's that's a standing standing with your backbone straight and stuff and being able to present your prices without apology, all of that kind of stuff takes a certain amount of personal growth and confidence to get it done. Well, I can't mix the two personally. I can't mix the, I, I can't multitask those two jobs during the day. That's why I push the time clock because when I push that time clock, I leave the business person out of the equation and I go to work as a craftsman and I become a craftsman. I focused on being a craftsman, being an artist, doing the best possible job I can. And when I'm done with that task, I push the time clock again and the business person starts eating on my ass because it took me so long to do it. But the business person doesn't get involved in the craft. Uh, That's really good insight. Really good insight. And and, And so consequently, Mike, pricing for me is no longer a challenge. I set a standard. I set a, I set a value for my time and I need to get a lot better at understanding what that is costing me. So today I have a, a close friend that's bringing an accountant type that we're going to dive deeper in more than just the PL. He got to talk about last week. Um, it was Caleb. He got to talking about his overhead and his nine percent. I'm like, yeah, I know my overhead. And then he got to talking numbers from a billion dollar company of what overhead was. I'm like, oh crap! I don't even have a clue what overhead is, right? <laughs> so, and I told him, man, we're good. We're very close friends. I said, you waterhead, you didn't come up with that number. How'd you get it? Did somebody come up with that number for you? Looking at the books, I want to meet that person. So by golly, we're going to look at those numbers and we're going to figure out what that is. And, and uh, my job, my, I'm not a piano mover, right, Kerry? And that's what Mr. Eaton said. I, I play it, but I don't move it. So I want people to come in here and tell me, okay, dude, this is your budget. This is what it's got. No, it's not. Here's your numbers, dude. Here's your numbers. They know how to analyze and look at all that crap. And then I can say, then I've got that number at the end of my day. Say, hey, I'm consistent and I'm even damn it, I wish that bit wasn't $31,000 because I don't think I can sell it. But that's what it is. So the price is the price, and I put it out there. And if I got to chew on it for four or five years or 20 years, like what's happening with the one bit, cool, I'll figure out. But because I know those numbers, the other pieces will help me pay for it as I move down the road. Yeah. So you're standing there in your shop. You're 10 years into your career trying to – scratching along trying to pay bills and stuff and you're standing there with a customer a client you're trying to develop a relationship with them and you're talking about pricing and and policy and all that kind of stuff the switch that we're talking about is this is not my policy this is company policy yes isn't that the switch (laughs) yes Then it takes me out of the equation, just like Mike said a moment ago. I'm out of the equation. This is company policy. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's the way I look at it. That's exactly the way I look at it. This is what I do. You know, this is, I treat it like I'm not mailing, mom, I'm not mailing you this bit until you pay for me. It's company policy. I don't put anything in the mail until I receive payment. Sorry, mom. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I think we've all heard the idea that knowledge is power. Um, 
And all of the things that you all you are doing today are knowledge, tracking your time, um, understanding your costs, um, evaluating your marketplace. That's a bank of knowledge that you've acquired. And mm. I believe it gives you power. And the power is uh, patience. Um, it, it, I grew up as a salesman and uh, it, it's amazing. It wasn't that hard to be a good salesman because most salespeople never followed up with their customer. Hmm. Um, they weren't patient. They weren't, I, I'll, you'll, you'll hear, I'll, I'll say this a lot. The, the first person to lose an argument is the one who talks after the discussion is over because it takes time for people to think their way through it. And yeah. if you've got to let someone digest what you've told them, you have to be patient in the knowledge that you did, your numbers are right, that you've correctly evaluated your work. And, um, and then you need to let the consumer, the, the customer come to the conclusion and allow them that time. But if you jump, or if you react, or if you simply say, well, if I knock another 50 bucks off, you've lost before you ever found out the answer that you wanted to have. 80% um, of sales happen after five follow-ups. Well, in our world, that may take a year for those five follow-ups. I have customers who buy from me, and it's uh, been seven years before they actually bought. And you know, I, I was told when I, I'm headed to the Big Loop Rodeo in Jordan Valley here just a little while. And the first time I started going there, um, I was told it would take five years before the community would accept me. Now, my family has a ranch there. I've worked there. I've spent, I've been in and around that community my whole flipping life. Mm -hmm. And I had to wait five years for them to accept me. Not me, but my work. Yeah. And lo and behold, um, last year, um, it was like gone. All, everything was gone before we hardly even the rodeo started. Yeah. Um, and it was the fifth year. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know. There so you it's, it, that's that patience, but it comes off of having knowledge that you can um, turn to to uh, allow you to be to be to let the consumer get to where you need them to be. I I was told they have to pay your dues. I heard it all growing up. You got to pay your dues. You got to pay your dues. But the hell with dues, right? Goods, good. Now they should buy it, right? And uh, that's not, I mean, you do, that's paying your dues, Mike, is what, it's, what it boils down to is, is that you have to pay those dues and, and just stay hooked, man. I mean, this is not a, this is a long-term decision. This is a journey, not a destination. And uh, if you're not in it for the journey, if you're in it for the journey, it five years won't seem like any time, right? Yeah. But, but if you, if you're not in it for that, it's tough. Well, and something else to be careful of is is that uh, I mean we all have order lists, and mm -hmm. this concept of, I've heard it a number of times that if your order list is getting too long, take your prices up, and if your order list is getting short, then you probably need to rethink your pricing strategy. I I, I try to be I encourage folks to be careful with that because your order list is a trailing indicator of the demand for your work. Mm -hmm. uh, 
it's not a leading indicator because we're all advancing our skills. We're getting better. The quality of our work is getting better. For the, I think we can say that anybody who's building a lot of gear. Um, and so as your quality goes up, then what was an acceptable price a year ago is not an acceptable price today. And so right. you're actually, number one, you're, you're using a trailing indicator to guide your pricing strategy. Um, and you're not having the opportunity to adjust your price consistent with the quality of your work fast enough. And so you create this long lag. Um, and that, 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 can, that can be a trap if you're not careful with it. It's not a bad concept. It's just not the only concept I would, I would, um, would look to. Well, I'm sir, I'm, I'm that disclaimer. I am absolutely guilty of doing that. Right. I say that all the time that your, your law of supply and demand. So, so if you got a big old backlog, then you're not charging enough. I say that all the time. So you're saying it's part of the equation, but it's not all the equation. Right. And, and get, uh, having a, and we're all artists and we want to create and we want to do, um, and part of creating is diving into areas that we are we would like to work on that we would have fun working on. Mm -hmm. And orderless tend to be, at least for me, that they they tend to be made up of things that I've already done. Exactly. And so I end up doing the same thing over and yep. over and over again. And that is monotonous, and that affects my creativity, and I think it affects my quality to some degree because. <laughs> Um, I'm not, I'm not stepping forward. And so it, it, there is no silver bullet in any of this. It, it's balance that you have to look for. I say it all the time. That's exactly why I said build for the show. I hear it all the time is people, well, that's what they want. So that's what I'm building. Awesome on orders. But at big loop, you're headed there today, Mike. Did you did you stretch yourself in some some into some things creatively that you wanted to do, or did you just do what everybody wanted? Um, so I'm taking the first quirk that I've taken anywhere. Absolutely perfect. Okay. Uh, now, I got I've gotten some critique on it already. It's first, and yep. so it's going to be priced accordingly because mm. uh, I don't want it hanging in my shop. I want to get on to the next one um, so I can take the feedback that I got in Montana and implement that in the next one. Um, so it's not a big deal, but um, it, it's it's what I wanted to do. It's where I want to go spend some time and explore. And and I think that, that it's a it's a product that allows me to do to be more creative and uh, just get out of my normal stuff. So yeah, but now am I taking a showpiece this time? No. So I violated Dr. Kittredge's um, rule uh, and I'm kicking myself um, for not doing that, but I'm the victim of my order list. I got behind, I had to catch up. And so I ended, that was the, the give that I had to make. I, I, but, I, but I will say, Mike, that you did perfect. I mean, did, is your court a showpiece? Well, it is because it's the first one, right? You just showed that you can do a quirk. Nobody knew you could do a quirk. Is there something to improve on? Well, sure. But you opened up a whole new world for yourself right there by doing a quirk. And so um, 
good on you, man. That and, and so my TCA pieces, I got one piece that I go all out on, that I do something on, and then I scale back from that. We create a range of pricing and a range of time, and I can't afford to do three $30,000 time commitments, right? That doesn't work. I don't have the time to do that, but you built that quirt, you hung out a new shingle, good on you. That is, that's perfect to me. Sorry, I'm getting Wilson, a big shine here. You know, what's happened to me, and I think probably you too, is that when you stretch yourself with those show pieces and uh, try to do some stuff you've never done before, all that kind of thing, then my my day-to-day customers are, are turning me loose on a lot more projects because of that. So so my day-to-day stuff is, yeah. has, has gotten to a whole different level because I'm I'm turned loose. I've, I've got customers saying, yes, uh, yeah, I'm good with that budget. You go, boy. That just you, turn, that, turns you loose. That's and, in, but that's all. That's the increasing the perceived values. Yeah. So yeah. Well, folks, we yeah, should that, wind this up. I got one last little wrinkle that I haven't sprung on you guys yet. It's gonna take thirty but, minutes. It's gonna take thirty <laughs> minutes with me and Mike talking. I guarantee. <laughs> what well, is it? I'll try to talk fast. So. Uh, anybody right. listening to the end of this podcast, if you message me at kerryschwartz at gmail.com, you'll get a free TCAA book signed with a rock sketch in it. So we'll see who's going to listen to Do the I end of this it? thing. <laughs> that, that, you're excluded. I'll tell you what, I'll send you one just because, Mike, okay? You get one just because. Do you have? Well, one he's of the our first books? repeat of. Do you have one of our books, Mike? I don't. Well, God, well, we can we can fix that. I got your address. So. He. He's the first repeat offender, right? So I mean, he back to backed it, so he gets a book out of the deal. Well, you remember what I said earlier. If you don't want to get invited back, just talk about business. <laughs> well, I except like with us two. Except for me and Carrie. Now you're like, oh, crap, I shouldn't have said it. Wish I hadn't have sat by Wilson. He's asking too damn many questions. Well, I'm thankful that the two of you are doing this. I think you created some conversations. We saw some of it after the last call. They're all good um, because it's, it's, to me, it's shining a light into a darkness that desperately needs to um, see the light of day. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you're doing this and um, really encouraged. Well, I, if we don't, if we, if our job, mine and Carrie's job as TCA members is to preserve and promote the disciplines we represent. If I teach you how to be the best bit in sperm in the world, but don't give you any insight on how to make a living doing it, I've not done my job to preserve and promote the discipline. I created a hobbyist. That's not what I want to create. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, uh, you have a great weekend, Mike. Have a fun time down there in Jordan Valley. I'm jealous. Haven't been there in many years. One of these years, I'm going to have to break away and come down and join you guys and raise a glass. That'd be awesome. It, it's a, it's, it is a hell of an event, and it's changed very little in 50 years. It's, it's just it's a good place to be. Good deal. That's cool. All right. Take care, everybody. Adios. Right.